Longbox Crusade presents Monthly Monday Movie Muckabout because the podcasting world needs another movie review show. I am Rick, also known as Not Jeff from Jeff and Rick Presents, and I love movies. I've got this huge collection of movies that I love to dive into and see, gosh, let me rewatch this film, let me see this again, but it gets boring watching the films by myself. So I get somebody to watch the movies with me, and this time, and then we sit there and talk about it. But the catch is, they haven't seen the movie yet. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't know why I'm asking you. You, you can't answer back to me. The only person who can answer back to me is the person who's here with me now, and that's Dave Vincent. He is a local Oregonian, a fellow local Oregon, I should say, who is currently dating a very good friend of mine, and he loves movies. At least I think he loves movies. I'm pretty sure he likes the person he's <laughs> dating, but I'm, I don't know where that adds. Yeah, I, I don't so, know where yeah. that adds up. At. But anyways, how you doing, David? Welcome. I'm doing great. Thank you for inviting me on. I'm really excited about this. I am too. Great. I am too. When we first met and I told you I did this little show, you're like, oh, that sounds like fun. I said, really? Then you're going to be on the show. <laughs> yeah, and I'm really excited about this because it gives me a chance to catch up. And with the pandemic, yes, I've watched a lot of movies, but even those that are on my lower on my list of, or higher up on my list, I haven't gotten to yet. So I'm really excited. Well, good, good. This is a chance for you to then get through some of that list. But first, I'm assuming that you like movies, right? Oh, I love movies. Yeah. I mean, I when left to my own devices, we would go, you know, two, three times a weekend to, to go see movies. So that's been, you know, one of the adjustments of, of not being able to go to the theaters is losing out on that vibe of being in a movie with a theater with a whole bunch of folks and you know, enjoying the popcorn and getting into the spirit of it. And so I'm, I'm excited to to, to do this from which is a little different of a perspective. I do like what you're saying, though, because I it's something I have missed about being in a movie theater. But a couple of times I've been since the pandemic started, there's a feeling of dread. And there's also a feeling of claustrophobia. Now, it's like there's the excitement of being in a room with a bunch of people that are excited about the movie. But then there's three or four other layers of things that are going on. And you're right. The things that we used to love about being in the movie theater is now the things that I I find that when I go back, I'm like, I like the movie theater if it weren't for all the people. <laughs> right. That's, you know, and that, you know, in, in fairness, I have not been to a theater mostly because I'm, well, almost to the point of paranoid with, with you know, uh, don't want to be in a room with a, with a bunch of people. But, and what I really, you know, enjoyed is, is the idea of being, sharing in a, in a forum like this where we kind of watch it separately but we kind of watch it together all at the same mm-hmm. time i yeah. have heard and and i have to, to to call out my son on this is that one of his first dates because he's trying to date in the pandemic as a as a 15 year old boy is that they watched a movie together on netflix but they uh-huh. weren't in the same room they yep. they chatted through the phone and that sort of thing so i think that's kind of sad that we're got we're at that point but at least there's a of mutual experience of watching it together, sharing it, talking about because that's one of the things I like the most about it, about going to the theater is is, is especially with your friends or date mm-hmm. or you get the conversation after the movie of what did you like? What did you not like? Oh, you're crazy. No, you're not. That kind of, of back and forth, which makes you understand and appreciate the film to me a little bit more. The number of times where my friends and I would stand outside the movie theater around our car back when I smoked to cigarettes, but smoking cigarettes, talking about the movie that we just saw, there is a social aspect there that is quite wonderful. And, and it, it's something that is missing. What you're saying about your son, though, it makes sense. We have a time now where things are difficult, are challenging. 
and people like your son or people younger generations or, or old generations, really, I'm not going to put any generations on this, but people are finding a way to still have that connection. We're going to watch a movie at the same time. We're going to do these things online. We're going to find a way to have some kind of social experience, even though we can't be around each other right now, which is good, which I appreciate and, and really applaud people that can do that and people that can still find a way to have that connection. I think we will all find a way we're a social being, us human beings, we'll find a way to do it. It's just how you and I do it now is different than we did it mm-hmm. a few years ago, which is different than when I was a, when I was a teenager. I mean, I used to remember having to call the phone line for them to run through the times that the film was going to show. Mm-hmm. And then if I missed it, I'd have to call back or, <laughs> or wait on a line again. Uh, movie line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and take a stop from talking about those things for now. And let me give you the movie that I want you to watch. I think we can make a jump to what we were talking about and the movie that I want to show you. Are you ready to know? I am ready. I'm excited. Yeah. I want you to sit down and go back a few years and watch a classic, classic film called Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Oh, I am so excited about this. You have no idea. My degree in in college, and, and I'm now I, I do computer business intelligence for a living, but my degree was in international relations. And it was one of those things that it kept getting referenced up in, in different class, even in classes. And, and I, I had never seen it. And my sophomore year, this is a great story, but this is this is why I have not seen this. Mm-hmm. The sophomore, my sophomore year, they scheduled it. And what was nice, nice at, at my campus is on Sunday nights, they would do retro films, vintage films, those types of things. So we could we always knew on Sunday night we'd be able to see one of these classics, right? And so they scheduled Dr. Strangelove, and then I got like the worst flu that I could ever imagine. And I was like, oh, I just can't even get up and go to the, to the theater. So I was really bummed about that. And it wasn't like at the time that we, you know, even the blockbuster that we had didn't, didn't have the movie. It didn't have all of all the movies. And so it kept, it's a can that kept getting kicked down the road. And so I'm really excited that I'm going to be able to experience this because I, of course I've seen clips of, of things because uh-huh. they, they reference different parts of it. And so I'm really excited that this is going to give me the opportunity to kind of drink in the movie here now that I'm, you know, everyone years old <laughs> and be able to experience it from having a little bit of life experience behind. This is a film that I have loved for a long time. First of all, it's by one of my favorite directors, hands down, Stanley Kubrick. I love the guy I've seen. I think I've seen all of his films, but I love most of them very much. A very divisive director. But this is stood up as one of these comedies that is ongoing. And with a cast that includes Peter Sellers, Mm -hmm. George C. Scott, Sterling Hayden, Slim Pickens, James Earl Jones is in here. I mean, there is some amazing people that are in this film. And just how this stands up to the test time and how it keeps getting referenced and how it keeps being a a point for a lot of people to to go back to it. I, I think it's there's a lot that we can discuss with this film. Yeah, and I'm really excited because one of the things that in study that in studying international relations, we I, I grew up at a time where obviously Cold War and U.S. versus Russia, and now it's or U.S. versus Soviet Union at the time, 
And now it's U.S. versus China versus Russia versus all these. It's it's no longer just us versus them. Mm-hmm. It's the enemy of our, our enemy is our friend type thing that, that, that we really we're really looking at it and see things a lot differently. So I'm really looking forward to watching this both from a nostalgic perspective of what it really was like Cold War area versus now of what lessons can we pull out of that that we could even apply today. Yeah. Well, I think we've gone through most of the questions I usually ask of what you know about this movie and why haven't you seen it. And I think your story has pretty much wrapped all that together. So the best thing we can do now is to let you walk off, get this movie wherever you can, sit down with Marla and watch this with her. That'll be fun to get her reactions as well. And we'll come back and talk about it after we listen to the trailer from 1964's Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Attack! Russia. Females to each male. A Coca-Cola machine. Fluids. The Doomsday Machine. Blast off! Shorts. Where's the bathroom? Buck, should I get it? On the hotline. Doctor Strange Love. Or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. A moving <laughs> picture. I shouldn't tell you this, man, Drake, but you're a good officer and you have a right to know. It looks like we're in a shooting war. Oh hell. All the Russians involved, sir. Well, boys, I reckon this is it. Nuclear combat toe-to-toe with the Ruskies. I don't like the look of this, Fred. All right, tell you what you better do, old buddy. I was under the impression that I was the only one in authority to order the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, That's right, sir. You are the only person authorized to do so. And although I uh, hate to judge before all the facts are in, it's beginning to look like uh, General Ripper exceeded his authority. I, I first became aware of it, Mandrake during the physical act of love. Huh. Missile still deflecting. Range one mile. Start lever to cut off. Cut off. Has that plane really got a chance of getting through? Well, uh, sir, uh, if the pilot's good, see, I mean, I mean, if he's really sharp, he can barrel that baby in solo. I mean, <laughs> you ought to see it sometime. It's a sight, you a big plane like a 52. Vroom! This jet exhaust, frying chickens in the barn. Doctor Strange Love, or how I learned to stop worrying and 
love the bomb. A moving <laughs> picture. And we are back. So let me give you a quick synopsis of the film, Dr. Strangelove, or How We Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. It is the beginning of the Cold War, and the tension between the United States and the Soviet Union is very high. And then, one general orders a first strike nuclear attack on the Soviet Union for his own personal reasons. The President of the United States, with his Joint Chiefs, attempts to defuse the situation while one lone B-52 bomber slowly flies to its target. The film follows the three plot lines of the B-52's mission, the chaotic stand of a general who has snapped and started this fiasco, and the situation in the war room as the U.S. leaders try to control a situation that has gone way out of their hands. Now, I know that that is a very simplistic explanation of this film, but I think we're going to get into so many different parts of it that it will all make sense. And really, it is a very simple film that has a lot of interesting implications. But we'll get to that in a second. First, I need to ask David, now that you have finally sat down and watched this film, what was your first impression? How much did it meet your expectations? It's funny because my expectations were this, were... Okay, so it's going to be a, a tight story between the Soviet Union and the United States and, and sort of satirical. And I had to watch it twice, actually, because I watched it in the theme of what did that mean from, from back then as an international relations major? Mm -hmm. And it totally hit my expectations on that because it was a, a really good synopsis of what the world felt like and how absurd it was back then even through the 80s when i grew up and on into to the collapse of the soviet union but when i watched it the second time it had a completely different flavor and here's why so i'm dating someone who's very much a feminist mm -hmm. i'm great not you know growing up in texas not my exposure you know exposure when i was a kid or or you know really until i turned 50 but anyway so <laughs> i started looking at it I, the reason i watched it a second time is i was like huh okay this is war generals and all of that but there was how many women in this film there was one and she was on screen for less than five minutes of a mm -hmm. 95 minute film yes right so I do want to get and talk to about the Soviet Union versus the United States and, and how it was yep. at the time, but I want to flip it to some and discuss about the male versus female, you know, feminism and, and anti-feminism in that, mm -hmm. because that looking at the movie from that perspective for me is what makes it timeless. Because if you take all of the subtext of Soviet Union, you know, you know, in, in literally a pissing contest between the United States and the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And you look at it from a male versus female perspective, it becomes mm -hmm. a whole lot different of a film for me. Oh, yeah. There is a large chunk of this film that really does deal with different forms of masculinity and actually directly points out a few places where it skewers or makes fun of that masculinity and actually blames the problem on some of the fears of male impotence. Oh, well, the classic scene of Slim Pickens 
as the as the bombardier at the last of the movie. Everybody's seen this this scene, right? Oh yeah. Of this huge yeah. rocket between his legs and going. So here's the interesting psychological perspective of this, and I did a little bit of research on this. Yeah. So Slim Pickens' character mm-hmm. was supposed to be played by Peter Sellers. It was supposed yep. to be sort of like an it would be even more so a fracture of the male identity looking at yeah. it from a 2020 perspective. Uh, now let's, let's be fair. Let's be fair too. He was supposed to play four roles in this movie, not three. Right. Or, or he was, so he, we've already got a fractured character uh, who's playing some very pivotal parts of this movie. And then also supposed to be playing this part as well. Right. So he, the, the, the four roles and let's be clear of what those four roles it were. He was supposed to be the bombardier. And let's let's go ahead and say that 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 was Major TJ King Kong right. is the bombardier's name. Major, yes, Major Kong, which if mm-hmm. you substitute a D for the K, then you get in all sorts of sexual references there. <laughs> so, and, and also you've got King Kong, which th- there's a lot of there as well. So yeah, you have the President Merkin, which yes, if you take the sexual innuendo there. Merkin Muffley. Yeah, Merkin Muffley. Right. So it's it's. And to be fair, he's also playing in that role kind of the entire opposite of the bombardier because he is very effeminate. Yes. He comes across as being the voice of reason. And I don't want to call yes. it effeminate. I want to call it feminine, a strong yeah. feminine type role. But there's parts of that role that he plays as also the weak feminine role too. Oh, no, he, no he, doubt. Yeah. He does let himself get run over a lot by other more manly men in the room. So well, and I there's that as that well. Would have been played. And that's where I get to the whole, it's played different in 1964 when this movie yes. was released, as opposed to what it might look like if you somehow remade it. Not that Which you, you can't. Not that you, <laughs> you, yeah, I mean, it would be. A, this is one that is, is, and if you talk about what my rating would, would, would be on that, is absolutely, this is a, a absolute time capsule piece of what yes. the United States and the Soviet Union were, were headed at. Let's look yep. at the date of this film. It was made in 1964. Which mm-hmm. was right after A, Kennedy was shot. And yes. for a lot of people who were like conspiracy theorists, not like the ones that are there, that, okay, the Soviets killed Kennedy to destabilize so that they could invade. Because let's remember, <clears throat> right before that was Cuban Missile Crisis and Bay of Pitt. And both of those things do lead into what a lot of Stanley Kubrick wrote and put into this film as well. Exactly. Exactly. And and a side note to right after the Kennedy assassination, there's a line in the film, and it was classic because it was it was they were talking about in their survival kits on the on the, the B-52. Yes. He's, he says there's lipstick <laughs> and condoms and, and all of this other stuff. And Kong goes, Wow, that'd be great for a weekend in Vegas. The original line for this was mm-hmm. that would be a great this would be a great thing to have in Dallas. Yeah, it, this would make for a great weekend in the Big D, which right. was Dallas. Right. So they changed that and actually overdubbed it. Over they overdubbed it. They overdubbed it and in the French copy that it actually still says Dallas in the French copy. So it, because they they wanted to change it to to be you know sensitive to that the Kennedy was killed in Dallas and what's what's interesting too is that looking at it nowadays it would make more sense to say Vegas than Dallas it was a very, because if you when I heard it the first time it was a little jarring because it was like it was almost like a what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas moment uh, yeah. but 
And then when I read the backstory after I saw the movie twice, it was like, oh, okay, that makes a little bit more sense. Back to Sellers. So he's played the, the feminine or feminist, depending on your perspective, mm-hmm. president. The other role is as the, the visiting British general, which was the voice of reason. And that's the group captain, Lionel Mandrake. Yeah. Which, once again, you've, you've got Mandrake, which is man duck. You know, it's. <laughs> and he's very traditionally stiff upper lip British, trying to stand up to the crazy general, trying to right. do the right thing. And, in, and a little bit weak and ineffective in his own right as well. Yeah, because he's getting stomped over by this ultra masculine, what, would, what we would call today warmongering general. Obviously, yes. he's doing. He's trying to start yeah. World War Three, and then the fourth role that he played was Doctor Strangelove himself. Which, if you look at that character, which is the t- titular character, mm-hmm. no pun intended, is <laughs> you—he's a Nazi for Pete's sake. Yes, no, he is. He is a former Nazi, and not too far removed from it. Who is? In a lot of senses, and the farther this goes down, he sees the ability to make his master race. Right. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And it's and it's a and, and what is interesting about that is that's absolutely for those that don't know the history, absolutely true. Werner Braun yeah. Braun, which by the way, in full disclosure, is a fairly not so far removed cousin of mine, went <laughs> from the developing rockets to fire missiles and and ex- thank god that they weren't nuclear missiles at the at the, the soviets and the americans during world war ii when the war was over he was ferreted out and ran a lot of nasa's programs for the early missions yeah for mercury and for and, and, mm-hmm. and it's like oh my gosh right and a lot of that got overlooked because we wanted that we being the United States wanted yeah. that technology to be able to do the arms race with the Soviets. Guess right. what? The Soviets did the exact same thing. Yeah. It was like dissolving a team and poaching the talent, right? It's, it's an interesting mix of we're going to forgive some of the horrors of the Holocaust because yeah, we need to make sure that the next Holocaust isn't on us. But also by putting a character like Dr. Strangelove in this and having them having it played by Peter Sellers almost at an insane level is it makes it a mockery. And you can look at that character and say, it's real, but it's also very scary. And it's also very funny. We, it's not what we want to do. It's not where we want to be. But then you also, you've got a lot of other fun things that are happening around it. As he's talking, he is enthralling and, and captivating everybody around him because he's weaving the story that they want to be told. He's helping move the narrative along like, yeah, this was a bad idea, but you know what? We can make the best out of this situation. And here's how. Absolutely. And he's playing to everybody's egos. And he's, re- he's the one that brings the reference of, it's going to be a ratio of 10 to 1 female to male. And like everybody in the room who is male is going, well, that seems like a good good idea to me. Whereas the actual film itself is actually the other way around, where you have one woman to, you know, 60 men. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's how that would actually end up, right? Here's one thing we should actually point out, too. Let, let's We could talk a little bit about Tracy Reed, because she is the one female. Mm-hmm. And she is not only the female who is with Georgie Scott's character, and that's her only little screen time, she is also the model that they use for the Playboy Playmate cover 
in inside when the crew of the B-52 bomber are looking at the Playboy, she is that model. It's the same actress. No, is it? I did not notice yes. that. That's really cool because that actually brings up a different layer. Is, is she then becomes the lone representative of the female species for the entire film? Yes, and she was in, in that Playboy cover. She was being covered by a book that said Foreign Affairs. It all, everything that's in here, layers upon layers itself of black comedy, if you will, and just just the satire of everything that's there. Tracy as Miss Scott, it's possible that you can look at her and say that she is, we don't get that much of her, but she is probably a lot smarter and more capable than George C. Scott. Absolutely. You look at the way that she stakes that conversation through, mm -hmm. she's doing all of the thinking and just presenting it on a plate. George C. Scott is definitely not the character that he is in, say, Patton. Let's just put it that way. We don't see her, but when she calls and talks to him, he takes her call while he's in the war room right. and is talking to her as the president's talking, as all these big things are going on. He's talking to her and he's answering questions because he is smitten by her and she is the one in control. So one female, she's got some pretty good strength in here. <laughs> she does. And that's, that was one of the reasons that I started looking at that and going, not only is, is it one female, it's very mm -hmm. strong, very she knows how to manipulate the situation and, and, and manipulate the person. And, and, and I don't say that in a bad way, because oftentimes any one of us that's been married knows that, that women can say, do position the right things to all of a sudden we're doing something, but we don't know exactly what we're doing, but we know <laughs> that she is going to benefit from it in the, in the end because of the whole doesn't have to be married, happy life, happy wife type scenario. Before we go too far on, let's talk a little bit more about Peter Sellers. It's impressive the three roles he did. And I forgot until the film ended, I forgot that he was playing the president. I knew he was Dr. Strangelove. I knew he was Lionel Mandrake. I lost him completely in his role as the president. I could not, until I went back and looked at it again, I was like, wow. Yeah, that's Peter Sellers. Absolutely. And, and the fact that he nailed the Midwest accent as yep. well as he did. And, and let's not forget, he also purportedly nailed the Texas accent to yes. the degree that the only reason that he wasn't used is because he got injured and couldn't yes. fit in the B-52 uh, right. rock up that they had. The insurance company said, nope, we, he, we will pull him from the film if you put him up there. And they said, okay, well, we'll do something else. And we will talk about Slim Pickens because we have to talk we about Slim Pickens. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, he, as the president, paints an entirely different character, American-based. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it even before I read it. It's like, that's Adelaide Stevenson. Because yes. that Midwestern sort of ideology, a kind of oh, let's be reasonable and logical about all of this as best we can. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, gentlemen, there's no fighting in the war room. I mean, that kind of thing of <laughs> let's get down to the brass tacks and, and do it and let's be reasonable about it when no one else was being reasonable about anything. I mean, here's the interesting thing is that I would say his character as the president is possibly the most boring character in the movie. Because he is the only one that's not a character. He is definitely the, the strongest part in the center there. He is the one who's doing the, the logical thinking. But he is the quiet one. Everybody else is the character that you could aspire a hundred faces over. But the president, he really gets lost in the background. He's He stands out just enough from 
the other white guys who are doing this, but that's just because he's the president and people defer to him. But he's very quiet. And in that room becomes the only one electable, right? Yes. So, and that's how you become president, right? And and, yep. and you do bring up, you, you referenced it there, interesting later, not a surprise for a movie in the mid-60s, there were zero minorities represented across the board. In that room. In that room. But, yes. Yes, in that room. But there were tons of minorities represented in the B-52, which is a whole other conversation right there. Oh, and, and, and we haven't gotten to that that connection because I really yeah. want to, and I want to get to that one in a little bit. But oh, yeah. In that, but in that decision-making war room, uh-huh. everyone save for, every American in that room was a white man. Yes. And you had two non-Americans in that room and still white. Yes. Yeah. As much as white as, as Soviet Union could be, right? They were white yeah. Anglo-Saxon Protestant Midwesterners or warmongers, but they were... They are part of the club. Yeah. They are part of the club. <laughs> True. Let's go ahead and go out the rest of the room in here. And I mean, in my mind, this movie is really run by George C. Scott. Yes. He, as General Buck Turgidson, which the names in this movie are just fantastic... He's the guy in the room who's answering all the questions about what's happening with the Air Force. What's going on? He's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and he's the one who's answering the questions. And he's also the one that's saying, hey, we know that this is a mistake that's going on, but why not? Let's use this to our advantage. And he's pushing this forward at a comical rate. Yes. Yeah, and when he starts doing almost a tap dance at the end, which is, it, it has comical effect. But you mm-hmm. do start to understand that, man, this is how this would progress. Because when the pressure in that room would get more and more and more, people would st- start to do mm, less logical things. And I could almost argue that from step one, Buck never did anything logical or uh, mature. He is a little boy in an army man's uniform. Well, and I think that was Kubrick's point. It, yep. that a lot of the people on both sides, but he highlighted it more from the American, were those kids playing in war, those little boys playing at war, except now they're doing it with real guns and real bombs and real airplanes, but not but giving one whit about what the ramifications of that are. Well, they don't need to. And you see it in the film because there's great juxtapositions between what happens in the war room. The war room. And then what's happening out at the Air, at the Air Force Base when right. people are dying and people are getting shot and it's, and it's dangerous. The attack on the B-52. Bad thing happens there, too. The worst thing that happens in the war room is there's a scuffle between him and the ambassador. Right. Which leads to the famous line of, gentlemen, gentlemen, there's no fighting in the war room. But every action that you see... George C. Scott do is that of a little boy. He chomps his gum. He puts his arms crossed and looks really pouty. He, he's yelling. He's hiding his stuff. Everything he does, even even his his interactions with Miss Scott, even those are just a, a little immature boy. Well, it's it's like he's having his candy, you know, taken mm-hmm. away from him. And you know, he he had to get up out of bed to to go to the war room, and he's pitching that little fit and then he's take you know making this play with and being i don't want to say called on the carpet but having to answer to the president for all of the 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 failures of the chain of command that should never present Mm -hmm. this um and and that is one thing that is i did want to point out the 
movie opens with a scroll that informs the audience, which would have been in a theater at the time, that the Air Force is assured of us that what happens in this film could not actually happen because in that it could incite panic because people are looking sure. going, is this really possible? No, they're, <laughs> but, but and, and so it sets it up as a satire in that, that yeah. realm. But what that does point out is people were genuinely, genuinely scared of what might happen with some sort of escalation between the United States and the Soviet yeah. Union. They'd seen it at Bay of Pigs. They'd seen it at C Cuban Missile Crisis. And like 10 loaded guns are, are aimed at your head on both sides. And I think we should point out, too, that this started off with Stanley Kubrick looking at a 1958 thriller called Red Alert. That was by a retired Royal Air Force navigator, Peter George. It really set up this scary topic about the threat of nuclear war through this mutual assured destruction type of scenario. That's the film he started to write first, is he took this idea and he started to build this horrific idea of what would happen in this situation. And he worked on it for a long time with one of his co-writers and he finally called him up and said, I can't do this film. We can't make this film. It's too dark. That's where he got a hold of Terry Southern, who wrote a couple of books himself that were more comedy and satirical. And he brought him in. And that guy is the one who helped Stanley Kubrick put in the satirical comedy. You have to look at it and laugh because it's true and it's scary and it's frightening. And if we can't laugh about it, we are in trouble. <laughs> I, I would say absolutely, because if they played this straight, mm -hmm. even now that movie would give me nightmares. Oh, yeah. Of what possible if, if you had a rogue general and a rogue b-52 run into russia and and drop a bomb i mean right we we've seen those movies coming out of the 80s and 90s and by that time we had thanks to movies like this and thanks to just going through a long time of the cold war and some of the cold war finally ending we kind of got to the point where like yeah this could happen but pff, it's fine and that you know yes these horrible things could happen but you know they won't really happen then we have something like 9-11, and we're like, ah, well, maybe they do. Well, and that's the thing that, that it points out, right, is that, in, in looking at it from my, you know, educational perspective, is certainly, I believe this, the world was a whole lot safer when it was U.S. versus Soviet Union. Sure. Because you could put those two powers in a room, and, the, and all of their minions, both NATO and Iron Curtain countries, and would be slapped into order by the big guy on the block being the Soviet Union or, or the United States. And I do mean big guy going back to my whole, yeah. you know, sexist rant here, but it was a safer world. Yes. We could explode the entire earth nine times over, but it was actually a safer world. And now that you have the proliferation of, of nuclear weapons, let's talk about, you know, let's, I mean, just pointing to what's happening contemporarily in Ukraine, yeah. it becomes really scary all of a sudden that you could have minor players escalate things to such a deep level. Right. That's with the, as much as the fear of having the big Armageddon, it's almost a little bit, it was a little bit nicer having that, 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 that safety net back then. We also get into the conversation about the doomsday device, because that's what that's what this all is on. Yes, there's this B-52 that's going over, and they can explain to Russia that this is just a mistake, and they can tone things down. Oh, but that's not going to cut it, because if one of these bombs explodes, that's going to set off the doomsday device, which is, it 
will automatically, if certain criteria is met, automatically launch a retaliatory strike. It takes it all out of the human hands. And not only does it launch a retaliatory strike against the United States, it would it, it was designed to sever the entire world right. cover for 97 years. Yeah. So this gets into the idea that while you may have the old Cold War mentality where you just get the guys in the room to hash this out, phone call, the, the red line to Moscow so you can fix this problem before it goes to that bad point. No, we've introduced a new element that takes it all out of our hands. And that's part of the problem from the beginning is that there is this plan R. It's a specially designed scenario that when it's enacted, it locks out nearly everything. Mm-hmm. So that no humans can get involved, so that nobody can be turned. Because not only can we not trust the guy over there, we can't also trust our own people because they might be spies as well. So the paranoia level has amped up even further. And it just becomes ridiculous. It's like, wow, we as a world are painting ourselves into this picture. This is not good. Plan R is the is sort of the U.S.'s equivalent of the doomsday. Yes. Because at that point, once the command R, the, the war plan R is initiated... The, to your point, all communication with the B-52s are cut off yes. until it's very specific three-digit code is hacked into the system to order the recalls, mm -hmm. which the general, the only general that knows that three character has gone completely utter and certifiably nuts. And oh, by the way, spoiler alert, is no longer around at the, at the, towards the mid-turn <laughs> of the film to actually issue that. So literally... And to go back to those that, of us that geocache, they're actually hacking this 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 three-digit code to get it and, and, and go. Except it's going to take 24 days, something like that. Right. And you were talking about Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper. Yes, Jack the Ripper. This yeah. is the paranoid commander of Burpleson Air Force Base. And he is played by Sterling Hayden. And he does... Probably, the and this is saying something after seeing Dr. Strangelove, he probably plays the creepiest role in this film because he is paranoid, psychotic, and he's very much got that mentality of, I know things are bad, and I've got conspiracy theories that I have developed that I understand, and I know that the Russians are out to get us, and I'm going to take care of it myself. And his access to all of these things that can make this horrible, horrible situation occur and his own intelligence to make it happen and his own paranoia make just the freakiest thing in the world. And I think he does a great job in his role. What do you think of him? Well, and see, that's the thing is, is that I lived around many rippers <laughs> when I was growing up in Texas. Oh, the Ruskies are out to get us. We got to do a preemptive strike. It's like, are you kidding me? Glad you don't have the, your hand on the button. Oh, wait. Now we have a film where this guy actually, well, does have his hand on the button and it's manipulating it. And it's like, this character is extremely scary. And as I watch this in 2022 now, yeah, there is some absolute parallels to some of the supreme uh, supreme extremism that we've seen in mm -hmm. modern politics on the left and on the right. Oh yeah. So it's oh, yeah. like oh my gosh, this guy hasn't died with history. No. We we have elements of that and 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 what it was in the mid 60s when the, this film was was created is in a some way he's painted he could be he could be painted as a absolute patriot. 
Yes. Not that absolute patriotism is is good in this sense, but yes, he's going to wave the flag. He is going to be the one that underneath his uniform has, you know, stars and stripe boxer briefs or, or, or tidy red, white, and blues because he absolutely believes to right. the absolute depth of his core in what he's saying. Right. For them, it's not just an ideology. It is the way of life. It's the American way of life. And, and that's the thing. That's the difference is that there is a way that you can be patriotic and, and love the country. But what he's doing is, is he is conflating his love for the country, his protection of the country, and his own failings as a man. That's part of it. But also his, his own uh, fears, his own paranoia, his own conditioning over time of saying... I must be prepared for this. This is going to happen. I must be prepared for this. This is going to happen. And then you start crossing wires with things that are happening with your life and saying, well, it must be happening now. So I'm going to take the first chance, first shot. So you bring up an interesting point because he comes up with this ideology as a result of his impotence in yep. the bedroom, right? His, I'm not going to give them the essence. It's like, uh, yeah, you're a little bit whack. And he's, he's doing this because... He feels less like a man in that sense, so he has to go and overcompensate on the other side. Yeah. Well, okay, overcompensate to such a point that he's going to literally try and end the world. Yes, and that's where we have him interacting with Lionel Mandrake, Captain Mandrake, who is just trying to resolve the situation as best he can. <laughs> There's one more character that does come in that we just talk about really quickly, and that is Colonel Bat Guano, of, uh, <laughs> played by Keenan Wynn. And this is after Jack Ripper, after uh, General Ripper takes his own life, and Peter Sellers is in Lionel Mandrake. He's in there. He's trying to figure out, you know, what the code could be, and he finds the code. But then you have this army officer who comes in and is trying to solve the problem, and he plays the, the perfect army officer. He's got an order. He's going to do that order, and he is just confounded by the logic of this British guy in front of him. <laughs> right. One of the best lines of the film comes by Guano, right? Yeah. From my perspective. And we start talking about the military industrial complex. At, at a point to call in, Mandrake needs change from a yeah. pay to, to, to a payphone. And, he sh and he's like, I don't shoot the Coke machine. Yeah, shoot the Coke and, machine. And, give me some money. To get me some money. And Guano's response is, okay. But if I do that, you're going to have the ones that's going to have to report to the Coca-Cola company. Yeah. What? Yeah. What? <laughs> because it's, it's because almost like a modern day equivalent of they're trying to hack it of, you know, if I go do this through Facebook, you're going to have to do, go against Mark Zuckerberg. So it's a call to capitalism is what it is. Yes. It's like there's a Coke machine on the base. We must pay Coke. We can't take money from Coke, even if the world will end. No. If you take the money and destroy the machine. Coke is out, right? So <laughs> after all of the destruction that happened on this base, after all the killing of lives, this guy is, this Count Colonel Guano is balking at shooting a Coke machine. <laughs> right. Well, and that's, that's the point of ridiculousness, right? That, yeah. that I'm, that Kubrick really wanted to point out yeah. is he has no problem issuing orders that's going to kill hundreds of soldiers, but he's hesitating at this point to take out a Coke machine. Right. So it becomes theater of the, of the, of the absurd. And Kubrick was a master of, 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 in every step of this, yes. of skewering 
the industrial complex, the associations with companies like big corporations like Coke. Yeah. Because make no mistake, it, in, in the mid-60s, that's just like attacking an Amazon or a Google of oh, today yeah. because those were the big companies that were making all of the money, right? Yeah. So he's skewering all of this so that you're looking at all of this and going, my God, what have we done? <laughs> you know, and what kind of world do we actually live in? And that's the point of satire. Yeah. Where you start to examine, oh, well, maybe we should take a, a deeper look at how we actually um, approach, in this case, approach war in the mid-60s. But here comes my argument back to, back to, to feminism and male-female relations is, here I am in 2020 looking at it going, maybe that's the way we need to look more at male and female relations and what a room full of, how am I going to say this politely, um, <laughs> men that are, that are driven by something other than intelligence and other base needs well, versus I, what's the right way to do this from the, that we're not going to kill each other. And I'm not going to dissuade that. I'm not going to say that we need to get a lot more different people into the rooms for these kinds of things. That's the definition of diversity and equity and inclusion. But at the same time, I think we have also seen that there is people in the world today does not matter their color, does not matter their race, does not matter their gender, doesn't matter any of that stuff. They, You can still manage to put together a group of people that all will act exactly like the people in the war room in this movie. Absolutely. <laughs> crazy knows no gender. Crazy knows no, no crazy race, no. religion. No, anybody can be crazy like that, right? Let's talk about the other crazy crew. And that, of course, is our B-52 bomber group. And that is run by Slim Pickens as the major TJ King Kong. He gets this order and he gives this impassioned speech saying that basically boils down to no matter whether or not you believe in nuclear weapons or not, we've been given the order. We got to kill everybody. Y'all need to come to God with that. Let's go. <laughs> What's funny about that, right, is is that, of course, it, from a political perspective, I go, yes, I, I get that. But he comes about it. Kong is the stereotype of the manly Texan in the room, yeah. right? And I can so see him doing a similar speech at halftime when they're down by three touchdowns. Yeah. And marching through the fields of, we're going to do this, and it's going to be reflective on your mother and your parentage. We have to do this. Going back to the absurd, mm -hmm. but absolutely right. He is pointing up as this is, y'all, this is what we signed up for. Yep. This is our duty. We are going to do this and we're going to do it right. And you're going to get me on the target and we're going to do this because yes. I will go ahead and say this right now about the crew in the, in the bomber. I would say that none of this is their fault. I would actually say that they are probably the most capable and most intelligent and most driven group in this entire thing. They have been given an order and they follow out the order to the T. They are doing they are doing exactly what they should do. They are a perfectly made machine that is working exactly right. And that's part of the sadness actually is because it's working so well. They are the doomsday doomsday device themselves. Like you said earlier. Exactly. But you know who was really excellent in this and this maybe the point was the character played by James Earl Jones. Darth Vader himself. Lieutenant Lothar Zog. Lieutenant Zog. Yes, he questions the orders mm -hmm. as he should to make sure that not that he's questioning the orders, but questioning whether or not the equipment is working the right way, that mm -hmm. they decoded things the right way, all of those things. And guess what? He's the most apparent minority in the film. Yep. 
and he's the voice of reason. Going back to Kubrick is not stupid. No. He is painting a picture of these voices are detached in the, the, the B-52. Yeah. But to your point, they're all, whatever the race or whatever the gender, well, no, sorry, they're all male. Whatever their race, they're all working as a team to your, you know, to, as we discussed, that have built the U.S. equivalent of the doomsday machine. And in doing that in their best human way of addressing each other with strengths, weaknesses, all of that other stuff. Always respectfully. Always respectfully. Always respectfully. But that's where they quote them, where, where in, in a way they lose their humanity to inhumanity. But here's the thing is not only does James Earl Jones question it, and he's listened to, he is listened yes. to, but also Slim Pickens questions it too. He gets out of his seat and he goes, I want to make sure that this is all correct as well. We have the people that are in this that are doing the double checking. Even going down to the final bomb run, they are doing the double checking and the triple checking. They are making sure everything works so that they can, they can do their mission. Right. I, I want to go back. Before we go too far down that, though, I want to go back a little bit back here to Slim Pickens and how he got this role. We've said that this was supposed to be Peter Sellers. They actually filmed two or three days with Peter Sellers in the role, and then he couldn't do it. But he was doing such an amazing job that Stanley Kubrick says, we can't replace him. We can't get an actor to do this role. We need a Texan. We need somebody who is like this, who is a cowboy. Mm -hmm. They got a hold. I think that Slim Pickens might have been their third choice because they actually ran into some problems when they were asking for actors to come in. And they're like, well, that movie's a little too pinko for our actor. <laughs> they're like, okay. Well, Slim Pickens was doing his rounds in a rodeo. This guy was a rodeo clown. He had had a few... Uh, acting gigs before, but the first thing they had to do is they had to get him a passport. He had never been out of the United States before. He showed up wearing cowboy boots and a cowboy hat. They thought that they thought that he'd come in and he had already been through the costuming department. He normally gets brasses. Yeah, yeah. He was so far out of his element. Some of the backstories of of how they dealt with him were amazing. Like I said, the co-writer of this, Terry Southern, he was from the South as well, because this was all filmed in England. And they sent him over to be the translator between the British and him. Right, because <laughs> no one speaks Texan here. I'm sorry, we need to translate. And, th and that actually does happen, so, you know. Yeah, and we, have, so you have a character who, he's not playing a part. He is Slim Pickens. He is a cowboy rodeo guy who is in charge of this plane. Yes. And, and playing it to the hilt. And the first the first thing he does after the orders are read is he goes to his own safe on the plane, opens it up, puts in his helmet, his military helmet, <laughs> and pulls out his cowboy hat. And he wears the cowboy hat through the rest of the film. Because if he is doing this, he, he's getting out of uniform and putting on his cowboy hat because that is right. him. And he because he knows that he's he, he will deliver his mission and him delivering his mission mm -hmm. is probably going to end up in his death. And he assures yeah. it at the end because of all of the, and, <laughs> oh my God. It, and everyone, who's, we will get it's to a that. classic scene. Yeah. He doesn't care who his left hand, right hand man is, as long as no. they are doing the job. And he comes across as Texan for sure, but not the stereotypical to the right Texan. It's really fascinating just seeing how that entire group operates. It is very reminiscent of the military. Mm -hmm. You got it starts off at the beginning where they've got downtime. They're just flying. 
They've got nothing really to do except fly. And so you see everybody doing their own things. They're reading, doing card tricks, looking at a Playboy. They are doing other things until they get the call come in. And once the call comes in, it is business, business, business. And what is classic about those scenes to me is in the background of the beginning is this very melodic music that's very kind of patriotic and upbeat and, and very soft. Yeah. Right? And it's so funny because at the end... You get that same kind of music at the end, and, and it's, don't see here what's watching here. This is what's happening, right? So the music was done by Laurie Johnson, and I, I think some credit needs to be given to, to that individual because the music is a character in this. It really does play a good part in it. Each one of the areas has its own beat that's going on, and, and it's really noticeable in the, the plane. Like you said... It starts off very melodic, very soft, but it, there's a definite military beat to it. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the film, you have a fast-paced, you have it bumping, but you still have that same stream of that military beat that you started with at the beginning. You know which scene you're in just by listening. That's a great point. Even in the war room, there's a certain cadence and beat to the music that's in the background. And so y you could in some cases watch it with your eyes closed and and guess which where you which scenes you're at whether they're on the base on the plane or in the war room just based on the character the theme of the, the music that's being played yeah. in the background it is to me one of the reasons i love movies so much is that they're using every instrument at their disposal to make this a absolutely absorbing experience for the individual it's the music it's the scenery it's the starkness of the war room it's the cramped quarters of the b-52 it's the plushness of the office where george c scott is laying with his mistress like all of these things come together the different rooms that they built are fantastic like you said the starkness of the war room the war room is this giant cavern i mean you feel like you're in a cave with these big beautiful screens and this giant round table where all of the action is taking place around that that table with this ring of lights above them and you just get the feeling that this is a serious room this is where serious decisions are made but everything that happens in there is just ridiculous and <laughs> pointless and you see people not being competent at their jobs and just blaming other people not taking responsibility for it and doing these little fights like you said the confines of that b-52 once you see these individual levels put together and into this, this glorious jigsaw puzzle you really do get to this holy cow moment of this is what life was like Mm -hmm. Yes, theater of the absurd, absolutely. But in that absurdity is this kernel of, kernel of reality and kernel of what people were actually going through at the at the time. And so it's it's an amazing to me now a, a lockbox of of a time capsule of an era that is that is gone and and thankfully to some degrees or maybe not so in others is is way in the past. But the lessons that are pulled out from that to me are timeless. And, and, and that's one of the things that's amazing about this film. Let me ask you, is there anything in this movie that didn't work for you? Or, yeah, there's some datedness in here. And I think we have talked a bit about the lack of female perspective. But once again, there's a bit of this was the time. But is there anything that, that didn't work or fell flat for you? I really 
appreciated the, the idea and concept of trying to have multiple facets from Peter Sellers in, in all the different ways. And it's not that, that Slim Pickens fell flat for me. I think I would have really loved to have seen Peter Sellers take that role on because it would have been a more of a psychological, this side of the brain, this side of the brain, this side of the brain. So that fell a little bit flat for me. And I'm not trying to take anything away that Slim Pickens did, but you could see that you were trying to build this whole character of the male psyche through all of these different parts. And it was a little bit incongruous and a little bit jarring to see Slim Pickens in that role. So for me, that's the only thing that, that that's glaring out. The other area that I think I understand why they did it because they're trying to make a point. The, the suicide by Ripper to me fell a little bit forced from a semantic perspective hmm. in that someone like that would probably have tried to go out in a blaze of glory and take down as many commies with them. It fell a little bit flat for me on that. Just the way that the Soviet characters were, were held, and there was only two of them, the attache and then, and, then, and then the ambassador. If I'm really going to nitpick, I would have liked them be a little bit more almost stereotypical Soviet. Because while they were, it, 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 and there, there was a little bit of the, okay, that caviar is not good enough for me type yeah. stuff. Ramping that up would have, would have, I think, been even more absurd because by the end of the film, or by, sorry, by the end of the war room stuff that's going on, everybody's on the same side. One of the scenes that got cut, final scene of the movie was supposed to be a giant pie fight scene in the war room. The Russian ambassador is over taking secret pictures with a whole bunch of different things over his body. General Turgidson sees him, goes over and they start the fight again. He's got cameras and the Russian reaches back and grabs a cream pie, throws it. The general ducks and it hits Pete and it hits the president in the face. And then this giant pie fight starts and there's pies flying everywhere. And then you get the final scene where where Dr. Strangelove stands up and says, oh, my God, I can walk. And then he slips and falls on some on some cream. They did it in one take because they said we have to do it at the final scene because it's going to destroy this room. And it was it got into so much hilariousness. Everybody was laughing. It was ruined, apparently, and they just couldn't use it. And so they decided to do something different. There was also a line that, that they took it out because in editing, too, mm. was because one of the lines was, uh, the president's been hit. Yes. Well, yes. That, that close to actually Kennedy being assassinated, they wanted to, and wanted to, to take yep. that out. And while this was absurd and a absolute farce and, and comedic value all the way around, it was that does go a little bit more into the Marx Brothers category that maybe didn't fit in with the theme. Here's the thing, though, is that we didn't see it. And knowing Stanley Kubrick, it may have worked because Stanley Kubrick made this work and it shouldn't have. It shouldn't have at all. Before we get into ratings, and I've got a really good guess about what you're going to rate this film. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on? Anything else you wanted to say? Oh, I, I actually there is one thing we haven't talked about. The final scene with, we've hinted at it, but the final scene where because of an attack on the plane, there's a malfunction. The one malfunction as they're doing all their tests, the bomb bay doors are not opening for the dropping of the bomb. So this forces Slim Pickens' character to go down, get on the missile, and he's working with the controls to get the door open. The door opens and they're over the target. So he says, go ahead and launch it. And then we get the scene of him 
riding down this nuclear missile into this detonation spot with his hat in his hand and yee-hawing all the way down. As if he were riding a bull right into the ground with a, a yee-haw. And it was unbelievably funny and so in character for him. And I loved it. I'd seen the, that scene a, a lot. When they talk about that movie, that's one of the most frequently played scenes. Yeah. And the context, I, I never understood the context behind it. And the context made it both funnier and more somber at the same time. He was yes. just doing his job. And yet, has never been happy. Absolutely. And then it goes into the doomsday device detonating, which is what the movie ends on. It, it's that juxtaposition of, we thought that everything was going to be okay. Oh, no, it's not. The song of We Will Meet Again as there's these mushroom clouds going everywhere. It's painting a picture of peace and it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay as everything explodes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> into 94 years and, and and those people are those that are in the tunnels will will be able to somehow sure reproduce the, the the species and i do know that that i did read that that was if they were going to make a sequel they were going to actually talk about how that underground community actually worked i am so glad they didn't i'm glad they left well enough alone because on its own this stands out as an absolute masterpiece yeah. Let's go ahead and move it into the ratings then. One to five scale. How many full bags of popcorn would you give this film? I mean, come on. Yeah. Are you going to give it any less than five? I can't. No, I, I really can't. <laughs> for, 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 for both the reasons I mentioned, I think that as a standalone commentary on the Cold War and the U.S. versus Soviet Falderall that went through so many years, you know, up until when I went to college in 1989, 1990, I, it is an absolute wonderful snapshot of the absurdity of two of the biggest powers, two, the two big powers on the world, deciding to blow up planet Earth. But also because it does hold up. If, to me, mm -hmm. if you flip the, the narrative to men versus women and, and, and sort of a feminist sort of commentary, I think it works on that level too, which I didn't expect you going in. So absolutely, it's, it's a five. I realize that my girlfriend won't watch it with me because she looks at it from a very much a, this is absurd 1965 <laughs> stuff, but. So she wouldn't watch she it. She wouldn't. No, I, I had to watch this on my own. I'm hoping that she'll she'll listen to this and give it a shot. And, and the reason I said it is I ended up buying the film because i rented it the first time through and i was i was on amazon and it says do you want to buy it i said oh yeah because i definitely want to see this again a second time through like right now well i went ahead and i have for a long time owned the vhs copy but i went and got myself the criterion edition which is fantastic because it comes with a nice few nice goodies including the top secret r envelope with a with a oh, nice. kind of breakdown of some of the back behind the scenes, like two full pages of like typewritten pages about the behind the scenes thing. There's a nice story that was originally in a 1994 Grand Street, but they put it in a mock-up of the Playboy, which is very oh, nice. nice. That's cool. And then it also comes with a very tiny Holy Bible and Russian phrase. <laughs> I am going to give this five too. There is a reason why... The American Film Institute has routinely ranked this in, in its top 100 films of all time. It's listed as one of the greatest comedies of all time. 
this film holds up. It's a warning. It's a mockery. It's a it's a passion. This is something that Stanley Kubrick really felt passionate about, and you can feel it. And I think everybody that worked on it also had a passion for it as well. Well, and you bring up a point, because would I, at this point, remake it? No, because I think anything that you do to, to classic films like this to remake, I think is ridiculous. But here's what I would do. I would love to see a movie about the making of Dr. Strangelove and all the different machinations and the different, you know, and, and show part of the pie fight and those types of things, because I think it would be fascinating to try and capture what the entire crew and Kubrick himself was trying to go for. Yep. And there's precedent for this because they yeah. did it for Apocalypse. Unfortunately, we're many years removed and we are, we've lost too many of the people that worked on the film. There are some artifacts that still exist. A couple of them I just mentioned. I got some really good stories that uh, Terry Southern wrote down about, about the behind the scenes that I talked about on here. There are some good artifacts out there. If you haven't seen this film, I highly suggest you watch it and look at some of the pieces about it. It's really good. It is fabulous film, and there's a reason we've talked for over an hour about it. <laughs> David, I want to say thank you very much for coming on this journey with me, for taking the time to watch the movie, to talk about it. I know that we, we've done this once. We'll probably do it again. We both have a love for movies, and we both like your girlfriend. So, <laughs> Thank you, and, 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 and yeah, she's, I'm awfully fond of her. I so enjoyed this experience. Thank you for the opportunity. As I said, the fact that I get to see this, looking back at my youth, gives me a different perspective on it, but it, it definitely stands the test of time for me. Well, thank you again. And David does not exist on the internet and do anything like I do. So don't go looking for him. You don't need to. Just, 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 just leave his <laughs> precious essences alone, okay? That's all I gotta say. Now, you can find me over on Twitter at mmuckabout or on my other podcast, Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, which I host with Jeff Smelly Pickens, who once tried to ride a laundry basket down some stairs like a bunking Brocco for a dare and lost. If you would like to be on the show, please feel free to contact me. You can reach me at Jeff and Rick Present, all one word at gmail.com. Big thank you to the Longbox Network for letting me use this wonderful attic of their headquarters to broadcast their show. And I want to thank the Longbox Crusade members who help support this network. If you want to support it, head on over to Patreon and search for Longbox Crusade. Now, grab some popcorn, pull up a seat, because we are going to be back next month with another movie. Music for this episode is Fall Back by musical genius Joe November. Check out his SoundCloud at josephlin99. That's J-O-S-E-F-L-I-N-9-9.